This is Anthony Pascal. And this is Lori Elster. And this is the All Access Star Trek podcast. Today, the main part of our podcast is going to be talking about Anthony's interview with Anthony Rapp from Star Trek Discovery. We'll be playing excerpts from that and talking about it and getting a good Discovery update. But... In case you're listening to this, let's say on Friday afternoon or over the weekend, and you're wondering why we're not talking about Comic-Con and the panels taking place, it's because we're recording before those panels happen. We'll, we'll have full coverage on the site. The focus is on Lower Decks and Prodigy. We'll be talking about all that on the next episode of All Access Star Trek. And we're hoping there will be clips or more tra- you know, trailer for Prodigy, something. We want footage. All right, so let's get into some news. We got we heard something very interesting about Star Trek Picard, courtesy of the Primitive Culture podcast, uh, which is by Trek FM, where Robert Duncan McNeil said that he has been talking to the Picard people or talked to them um, about directing the show or being on it, neither of which actually happened. As Tom Paris. As Tom Paris. Not as, what's his name from that Next Generation episode? <laughs> right. Locarno. Nick Thank Lacarno. you. Thank you. I was shocked that didn't just fly into my mind because it usually does. That would be more interesting. Yes. <laughs> well, because I was trying be to figure crazy. out what you would do, why Tom Paris would show up on Picard. I mean, my I like the character a lot more than I used to. I'm really liking him these days. But uh, it would seem a little odd. Yeah, he said it's all about his schedule. He did describe what he thought it would be like for season one, at least. And he said it wasn't a big sequence of scenes. It was just a couple scenes with Patrick, either at the view screen or possibly in his office. And he said it. the reason it was like that was because they were kind of trying to work into a schedule without it being a big thing. So it wasn't going to be a recurring role like Seven, but maybe a little bit more than a cameo. And I'm trying to think... Is there a scene in season one of Picard where you could imagine it would have been Tom Paris? I'm not really sure. The only thing I could think of was before he found Rios, if he was looking for a ship and a pilot. Oh, that's a very good uh, suggestion. And then Tom would say, oh, I'm with Balana and the kids and I don't do that anymore or something. Right. <laughs> I just don't see the need for that except for, hey, look, yeah. it's Tom Paris. I mean, Same. but... Same. It's very, you know, that's very much like Riker at the end where it's fun, but not necessary. Whereas Riker in Nepenthe, Riker and Troy was essential to the season, I feel, and made sense and was organic. There's nothing wrong with having a fun little cameo, I guess. But uh, we didn't miss anything, I guess, with with Yeah, this. and I think it would, I think I agree with you. It would have felt gratuitous and sort of weird. I mean, fun. I'm happy to see any of them. Um, and, and especially to get a follow-up on some of those characters. But uh, I agree, would have been a little weird. But he also was talking to them about directing, of course, which makes sense. He's a producer. He's a director. He's got so many credits to his name right now. And people love working with him. So it makes a lot of sense. And he knows the showrunner. The reason he was talking to Terry Metalis, they have a history. So Terry Metalis was on the last few seasons of Voyager, so they worked together then. He was a production associate. And then he was on Enterprise, which uh, he directed some of those, right? Robbie did? 
Yeah, Robbie directed four each, Voyager and Enterprise. So they have a history. They know each other. Of course, Terry wasn't even there for season one, though. That's going back. That was Michael Chabon and Akiva. So I could totally see Terry kind of reaching out to his buddy saying, hey, do you want to direct? Do you want to show up as Tom? It'd be fun to catch up. But why, why was Michael Chabon and Akiva, and Akiva... You know, he, he's a you know, Voyager aware. Obviously, Seven was on the show, but, you know, he's a TOS fanboy, really. And I don't know, you know, some, but someone someone thought it would be cool to bring in Tom Paris. Apparently, they also spoke to um, Picardo, I believe, at one point. N- nothing definitive. We know they've spoken to LeVar and apparently to Gates. So, you know, there's been a lot of talks of with various actors and some of whom have shown up. Obviously we're getting John Delancey in season two, Brent Spiner in season one and season two, Jerry and Jonathan Del Arco, who's Hugh. And of course, Jonathan and Marina. So they've had a surprising amount of people, but there's so many more main cast members they could dip into. Right. And if they were like actually having the doctor from Voyager would, I think, could make more sense in a storyline, frankly. Yeah, but you have to. When I interviewed him, we talked about how do you deal with that? Do you de-age him or right. not? You know, so there's certainly issues with that. Um, and is he just there for comic relief? Because he's obviously so good at humor. It would be nice for them to get someone from Deep Space Nine, obviously, because, you know, there's three shows from this era and uh, they've had characters from two. Why not? You know, I I mean, I think O'Brien would be amazing to get on the show. Yes. Obviously. He's, you know, Colm's such a great actor and uh, you could come up with so many interesting things about what he's up to. If yeah, they, and I, th- I think you know, and what he had said in the past, he did, wouldn't, didn't want to do it, but then he said he would do it if it was something good, and I think you could come up with something good for him. Yes, I think that would be much easier, less of a stretch, and he could just, they could be working on something, and then suddenly there he is, like a, for, comes out from under some panel, <laughs> and there he is, and then obviously have more than just that. It's not just a cameo. But anyway, we should do a list of all the people we'd like to see appear on Picard. <laughs> and how we think they could do it that wouldn't just be stupid. Like, hey, there's Worf. Waving through the window. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, can I have my own show? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Sorry, Michael, if you're listening. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> my money's on him not listening, but you know. Yeah, almost certainly, but just in case. <laughs> we, we also got, speaking of people showing up, Brent Spiner talking about season two, you know, no spoilers. Recently, we kind of had a little bit of a maybe he's playing Data thing, but we don't think he is because Jonathan Frakes said he wasn't. But Brent Spiner is talking about what it's like working with Jonathan Frakes. And we always hear actors not just TNG actors, but there's something magical about Frakes and actors, I think. And Brent was talking about being on season two with Jonathan. And he says he, he always feels in good hands with him. He just finished doing an episode with him and it was great. He talks about, you know, they have a shorthand, but he also said he's really skilled now. Like, so he's kind of indicating he's even better than he was on TNG. 
even though he said he was his favorite director on TNG. Right. I don't know. Just, you know, we haven't learned anything new about season two, but it does. I really hope that they did a lot of behind the scenes footage when you've got all of them there. Cause you got Patrick, Brent, Jonathan, and Delancey. I know. Who knows who else, but hopefully there's footage of, you know, the gang all back together. Um, on set because Brent also talked about how they have a special bond is his phrase. And, you know, back in TNG, how they were, you know, it was always fun and games on the set and that they're, they're kind of this camaraderie is back, you know, behind the scenes on Picard. I mean, these people are still friends, you know, they have dinner together, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, this is like, they're like godparents of each other's children and we're all at each other's weddings and are, have remained close throughout the years yeah i'm still very curious about season two of picard if he's playing soon which we're almost sure he is and we go back to the theory that it's all time travel or an alternate timeline is he playing an alternate version of soon yeah no there are a lot of questions or is he let's go let's go crazy when they travel back to which were you know fairly certain may not be the right word but confident confident that they're traveling back to 2020s Los Angeles. It would be ridiculous, but yet I could see them doing it, that he's playing yet another ancestor. A 2020s Sung. That there's something about this family. They all look alike. Um, (laughs) And he's, you know, doing some genetics research or, you know, something. You know, maybe he's responsible for World War III. Who knows? What do you think? Because all Frakes, all Frakes said is Brent's not playing Data. He's playing, quote, another role. Now we assume, oh, well, it must be the role he played in season one. They created Well, also because just- Akiva had said that a long, long, long time ago. He said, oh, there's room for that character to come back. Right. But that he said that before they, you know, had kind of worked out season two. I mean, they, the way they, they created the character, yeah. But they don't necessarily, you know, but maybe they came up with another idea like, oh, well, now that we're going back in time, how do we get Spiner in? Because we want to get him in again. There's no limit to how many Soongs there are. Exactly. But there obviously is a limit to what their faces can look like. <laughs> exactly. There's, and I feel like s- if, if there were a female one, he would play her also. <laughs> He he did cross dress on TNG, right? Yes, in Fistful he, of Datas. Yes, he did. Some news came up last week that uh, Stranger Worlds is primarily shot in Toronto, not on the same stages as Picard. They actually have a. It's in Miss Mississauga. Ne- I'll never get that right. I'm going to make uh, you say it, Mississauga. <laughs> it's it's like Mississippi, but Mississauga. Mississauga. There you so go. So. Discover shot in Pinewood, which is more downtown Toronto. Yeah, not really in the heart of downtown. No. But in the city to whereas CBS stages where Strange New Worlds is, is is roughly like 20 minutes away in Mississauga, right? Yes. Not the same place is the point. Correct. Um, Although um, if you meet someone from Mississauga and you're traveling and you say, where are you from? They'll say Toronto. Right. That's like how there's 50 cities in Los Angeles, but everyone just says there's they're from right. Los Angeles. Yeah. But it was announced that they're also doing shooting in New Mexico. 
uh, but this is specifically visual effects shooting. So I, it's almost certain that none of the actors are involved. This will be, you know, establishing shots and just, you know, visual landscape. So they're, the, you know, the, the press release from the New Mexico Film Commission, because they're so proud that, you know, they got Star Trek, you know, said that they're doing multiple locations. And so obviously they're adding a little strange to the strange new worlds, right? Because it's a beautiful state and there's a lot of interesting, diverse locations and, you know, including a lot of unusual ones. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because obviously there are areas of Canada that also have really bizarre looking landscapes and nature. But I assume if it's the visual effects team, then they're based in L.A. So it makes more sense for them to do it there. Who knows? But yeah, obviously they wanted something really alien. And I've never been to New Mexico, but I hear it's gorgeous and spectacular. So that's probably why. Now, there is a question about... It's unclear when they started this because it was just kind of announced and they may have been doing this for months or they may have just started. And one of the reasons it's that would make a difference is even though Anson Mount isn't in New Mexico, because of this new technology they're using, which we've talked about here on the pod, this what's called AR wall or virtual set technology, it is possible to insert Anson Mount into these locations uh, live kind of where they shoot something in New Mexico and then they bring it to Toronto for this virtual set they've created. Um, So you might see some of these locations from New Mexico show up with the actors. It's, it's, you know, we don't know yet. That kind of makes more sense. Right. The information came out now, but that doesn't mean now is when they're shooting it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's good to know that they are sparing no expense. I don't know if that's the right term, but they're definitely going out of their way to make sure that things look alien on the show. Yeah. Which means they're going to strange new worlds as promised. There is a limit to how much you can shoot around Toronto. I mean, this this was the old joke of fans of Stargate SG-1. You know, it's like every alien planet ended up looking the same, right? They all have this you know, Vancouver forest look to them because there's just only so much you could find in Vancouver, Canada, where that show was shot. Discovery hasn't, they don't do, you know, they don't visit a lot of planets in Discovery, unfortunately. Whereas this show, if it is literally planet of the week, which they've described it, they got to come up with a lot of different looks. That's a big challenge for them, actually. It'll be interesting to see if they keep up the Star Trek tradition, if they go somewhere to the planet where everybody dresses the same. Because that seems to be a Star Trek staple. Everybody has a vest or everybody has the same coat or whatever. You know, everybody wears a weird jumpsuit. But there's a lot there's been a lot of that over the decades. So yeah. let's let's I understand, you know, the the uh, budget, the budgetary thinking, but it is super weird. <laughs> By the way, um, even though they're doing the virtual set thing and they're doing this visual you know, second unit visual. We do know that they've done significant location shooting in Canada as well. Um, yeah. In Toronto, you know, including in the last week, we know at least a couple locations where they were shooting. Oh yeah. They went to Black Creek Pioneer Village, which is like a staple. If you grow up anywhere in that area, that's where you go on field trips when you're a kid, which is like an old timey wimey village that's set up to look the way it was, you know, a couple centuries ago. 
and to a university, right? Oh, they were at York University where I went for one bleak semester. Um, but yeah, just a lot of concrete. You know, it's a big, lots of space and lots of concrete. So it's interesting. I'm I'm very excited about the show and fascinated to see what they decide to do with all of this. And it's always, for me, it's super exciting to see Toronto on TV. One of the big questions is Strange New Worlds should be done, right? Because they started shooting two weeks ago, the final episode. Yeah. So, you know, that's roughly, they've been at that. Within days, we think they're going to be wrapped, but we still haven't heard a definitive we're done thing. Um, And I think one of the actors on the show tweeted something yesterday, kind of indicated they were still at work yesterday, yesterday being Wednesday. When we get a definitive, they're done. We'll try to put something up. All the shows are, you know, because getting close to that. So hopefully we'll have, you know, this show wrapped, that show wrapped, all that kind of stuff coming up soon. Yeah, we should be getting updates. Speaking of updates. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Buy me a Coke. Um, (laughs) So speaking of updates, we got an update on a show that we have not heard about in quite some time. Although we're not sure of when it's actually from, but it has to do with the Section 31 show. This was from an interview with Alex Kurtzman on a Producers Guild panel. Was that what it was? We've covered a lot of these panels on the show. You know, they're, they're always done during award seasons. This was released in the last few weeks by the Producers Guild of America. It was a members-only panel. So it was a very elite group of people who could have actually watched this live. We don't know when it was recorded, recorded, but my bet is it was recorded before the PGA awards were announced. And those were announced in early March. So my bet is... It was recorded in February. Okay, so enough of that inside baseball. Um, but that you know the, the, that adds to the context. So this was all about it was another Discovery season three panel because they were shooting for you know people to nominate Discovery season three, and so ninety percent of this plus was talking about Discovery season three. But the moderator asked about Section Thirty One show, um, and Alex said uh, we have a couple of scripts which we kind of knew that they. That was a pretty good guess because we knew that they were got that they had gotten started on that, and he said they were on a very specific schedule, and then COVID threw everything off. But he says we're still on a great track, is what he said. Whereas we were sort of seeing that as maybe on hold and being rethought, which is still possible, of course. He said, "I'm very optimistic about it." Yes. Now, there's two ways you could look at that. One is um, if it was happening. Right. Would you say I'm very optimistic about it or, you know, <laughs> right. you know, don't worry, we're going to start shooting next year. You know, this is likely months ago. A lot has happened in those months, including changes in executives at Paramount Plus. I do believe that in 2019, when they announced the show and they put together the writer's room and Alex Kurtzman was saying he told, said to me at some red carpet or something and, and others that, yeah, we're going to start shooting in 2020 after we finish discovery season three, I believe they yes. believed that yeah. that was the plan. Um, so they were going to start shooting in like May, 2020 and certainly through t- 2019, that was plan a, um, I don't think they ever, I'm not sure they ever got the hundred percent, go ahead from CBS Paramount 
to do that, you know, but that was definitely their plan. They were spending money developing scripts and that kind of thing. But, you know, I do find it interesting. He says, we've got a couple of scripts, right? Now you put together a writer's room two years ago. You should have more than two scripts. Yeah. You should have 10, right? If you're planning on shooting a season. You should certainly have more than a couple. Now he could have been saying a couple when he meant 10. I think a couple may mean they have a couple different versions of the pilot or they have a two-part pilot. But I I still, let's face it, COVID happened and is still happening. (laughs) But from Hollywood's point of view, they're now dealing with COVID. You know, when Alex said this, he had three shows in production by February 2021. Right. They were right. in in front of cameras, nothing stopping them. They were going ahead, plus two animated shows. So, yeah, all those shows were delayed. You know, one could say that you wouldn't want to put a fourth live action show in on top of those. And there's, you know, and we could say, well, you know, there's a reason why they went ahead with the section. To, or, I'm sorry, the Strange New Worlds first, but that they're still planning and getting around to the Section 31 show, maybe after they finish discovery season four but then you go well but michelle yo just signed on to this witcher show yeah she's busy yeah you know she's got a she's in a marvel movie coming out this year she's you know she's just constantly working right she's in demand and they would definitely have to carve out a time for her so you know if they're gonna do it they've got to lock her down for six months or whatever it is and I'm not sure that that's happened. I mean, maybe we're going to hear about this in a couple months and I'll sound like, you know, doom and gloomy. But one of the reasons we know they were definitely planning on this is because, and they talked about this more in the PGA panel, is they talked about how much time and effort they put into setting up the Section 31 show in Season 3 of Discovery. And, you know, if you remember, Lori, you and I talked about especially early in season three of discover like why is Giorgio even here what's the point right right and the point was they needed they felt like they needed to show that she's dealing with the consequences of her choices as a Terran which is something Alex literally said you know he said we knew we were bringing Michelle into the section 31 show we needed to give her an appropriate goodbye that tied up a lot of the story thread I would say more than tying it up though they've they've opened it up by because of the guardian of forever because it gives them the opportunity to pick and choose where they send her but you wouldn't have gone to that trouble unless you really were planning on giving her a show yeah it wasn't just they spent a lot of time and effort multiple episodes you know they 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 brought the guardian of forever back so yeah they're they were definitely definitely planning on making the show it's just that they haven't yet and they could be doing it or they could be saying they're about to start and they still haven't so right we might all be surprised and this thing goes into production in the fall when it should if they really was the plan so if by the end of this year they haven't started shooting we'll know you know they've changed their minds yeah or or they've put it on pause i personally still am holding out hope that they will give up the section 31 part of it Maybe that's just me. <laughs> I say, look, you got a couple scripts. Um, you don't know whether you want to commit to a series. Shoot a three-part miniseries at the end of this year, early next year. Put it on Paramount Plus or do it as a 
Paramount Plus exclusive movie, see how it does, see if it does well internationally, which may be part of the appeal for this, and test the waters. Yeah, know? she has a huge international appeal, so that's helpful. Yeah. Um, but I agree. There are all kinds of ways to test the waters and try different things and see what works. You may not be able to properly test it out by just giving her a guest shot on Strange New Worlds, for example. Right. That's not going to give you the information that you need. Right. I mean, okay. it might do something, but you want to introduce new characters. Uh, of course, I want Dax to be a character on this show because <laughs> Dax was a character in the book that she, you know, well, we'll, we'll get into that at some other time. But okay. there, is a, there is a Dax, I think it's Emily Dax, who knows Giorgio the and uh um is already part of her little world um back in the 23rd century so you want to bring all these characters i'm not saying she's part of the show for sure but i'm saying they're going to build a set of characters around her and you can't introduce all of them probably in a guest shot on stranger worlds no but when it's time for her to launch something whatever it is that would be a nice thing to happen right before that just remind everybody of who she is Okay, so let's pivot to Discovery, and let's first talk about the biggest thing that happened from Paramount Plus's point of view, or CBS's point of view, which is they released Season 3 on Blu-ray, DVD, and Steelbook this week. So first of all, we're giving away three copies with hats. We got hats, people! So you want to go to trekmovie.com, there'll be a link in the show notes as well. Uh, the cutoff is midnight Friday night, Pacific time. All you need to do is leave a comment on what you like about Star Trek Discovery, and you have a random chance to win a hat and a Blu-ray copy. On our site. I have been enjoying reading people's comments on why they like the show. It's a nice, uplifting section of our website. People always say, don't read the comments, and that is true. And, you know... Uh, you know, I always try to remind people that a very, very small percentage of people actually write comments on websites. And so um, they tend to be the more intense Angry people. people. Yes. Well, you know, whatever, you know, the, the, the motivated is another way to say it. Um, and we love comments. But what I, you know, what I'm loving is we're getting a lot of lurkers coming out and, you know, telling us what they feel about the show because they want to win a prize. And that's great. We've made a safe space to say that you like Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> now, you'll want to check out the review of the Blu-ray set from Matt Wright. As always, it's very extensive. It yeah. tells you everything about it. It's a good review of the season. gives you his thoughts on the season, which are different than Lori's thoughts and my thoughts. We went through those. Even though it te I tend to agree with Matt's POV um, on the show. Um, and just super into detail on all the technical stuff, especially the special features. Cause there's a lot, there's a lot of special features on this set. Although Matt's view and I sort of agree is there's not enough of them. So everything there is good, but, and you know, a lot of the stuff that you want to see, like there's a lot of deleted scenes some really good stuff in the deleted scenes. In fact, we got an exclusive clip of one of the deleted scenes, but there's, there's a lot more and there's a gag reel and that's fantastic and a lot of fun, but there's no commentary on any of the episodes, which I, I love a good commentary. And so for me personally, I was kind of surprised. 
Um, and the set's around $35. I think it's worth it. I got the Steelbook version, and it's really it, it costs $5 more to get it in the Steelbook, but it's just really cool. It's, it looks great. Oh, um, nice. The pack, I mean, it's just, it's just packaging. Yeah. It's the same. It's the same set, but you know, it's fancy. <laughs> you're fancy. <laughs> you know, it would, I mean, you're probably not listening to this podcast if you're one of these people, but a lot of people don't watch the show on streaming. And I, I do have to say, it looks better. Paramount Plus is pretty good and they've gotten better, uh, especially with high definition streaming. But if you've got a really good TV, this will definitely be a superior visual and sound experience to, to watch it on, on Blu-ray. Um, it's also a DVD, by the way, in case you still have a DVD player. And if you're not fancy. You know, if, if you were really patient, this is probably the best way to watch the show is to watch it on Blu-ray because you could binge it and you could see it in, in perfect clarity you know, it would be great if it was in UHD, which Matt points out, you know, because we know we're getting the UHD Star Trek movies next year. And it'll be interesting to see whether eventually they start doing the TV shows in UHD as well, even though it's a little bit more of a limited market of people who um, you know, basically when you buy a UHD Blu-ray player, you want everyone to release everything in UHD and it annoys you when they don't. Right. But, uh you know, this TV show is not the only one not releasing in UHD. That's for sure. But uh, we'll, uh, but I think eventually that'll become standard too. Certainly, with yeah, and especially for show, for shows like Star Trek shows, which are gorgeous to look at. So where they put a lot of effort into that, it's not a sitcom. You know, it's uh, lots of visual effects and and beautiful settings and production design and things like that. Um, we do have some, we do have a production update also in Star Trek Discovery season four, um, which is that they are just about done, according to some interviews going around. So we have Sonequa Martin-Green, who has been in LA promoting Space Jam and says season four is just about done. And then Anthony Rapp told you he's done for the season, right? So Doug said in one interview, we're closing in on the end. Sonequa said that, you know, they're just about done. They have a little bit more to do. But then Anthony tells me he's done. So he said there's more shooting to be done at one location, but Stamets wasn't part of that location. So some people are done. Some people aren't done, which may explains why some people are going to Vegas and some people aren't. Yeah, I think it fully explains that. But if you think about how long it takes to shoot and how the show works, I mean, either they're right in the middle of the last episode or they're shooting things out of order, possibly, because there's no way that Stamets isn't in the season finale. No, that's I think it's I think it's specifically what Anthony Rapp said, which is that it's location shooting, which means specific people who are at one location. And it makes sense that there would just be a handful of them that they're shooting out of order. So maybe Sonequa went to L.A. At, requiring the two week. Um, quarantine for her to come back like right in the middle of the final episode possibly i think it could also be related to the ar wall because um, i think what they're doing because the ar wall isn't in the same location as pinewood or mississauga it is in yet a third location in toronto in toronto so it's a little bit of a schlep to get over there so that they don't necessarily shoot using the AR wall 
you know, in between takes on the bridge, for example. Right. And in fact, when I interviewed Doug back in January, he talked about this where they had already finished two or three episodes, but he had yet to work on the AR wall set. He said they were going to go back and do the first three episodes worth of stuff on the AR wall all at once, I think. And I also think just location wise with COVID protocols, it makes sense to group things by location as much as you can when it makes sense for the story that you're telling. Um, because it's obviously, it's it's a much bigger operation. And that's something Doug Jones talked about in an interview too, where he says that it's changed the way that everything happens. And he said, you know, we're grateful for all these protocols because we can get the job done and we can keep things going. But it does, it takes longer and it changes things and definitely would affect location shooting, I think. And trimming the amount of people that you need around at any given time. But it looks like Discovery is, well, it is kind of very close to being done. They are kind of done with, my bet is they're done with the Pinewood stuff for the season. That's done. Yeah, that makes sense. And now they're shooting at at other locations, possibly the AR wall, possibly, you know, just some location shooting. And then they're done, basically, for the season. Right. So it's just the last bunch of actors who are in those scenes they haven't filmed yet. Okay, so let's sort of bring on um, Anthony Rapp. (laughs) So Tony interviewed Anthony. I was on vacation and Tony had a very short window and rather spontaneous window to interview Anthony Rapp. I thought he did a great job. So we're going to roll in some clips and talk about stuff that he said. Although you were part of the interview because you suggested some of the questions. Yeah, I was there in spirit because I love Anthony Rapp. <laughs> yes, and there's definitely a couple of questions I wouldn't have even thought of. The first one was was kind of one of mine. I'm always fascinated with the arc that characters are on and how the actors see those arcs. And we've seen Stamets go through some changes over three seasons. And so I wanted to ask Anthony and four seasons, presumably, what he thinks is quintessential to the character that's never going to change. And but what he also sees is a long arc of where the character is headed. So let's hear what he had to say about that. I think one of the most quintessential things is an unfailing work ethic, and then you know the there's an ongoing thread of like work life balance that extends throughout all the seasons, but sometimes gets a little more intense than others. But yeah, Stamets will work into the wee hours any day of the week to get the to get it done. So that's one of the things. And also, you know, a, a level of expectation of his colleagues that they should do the same. <laughs> that's, that's pretty quintessential. And, and the long arc, the long arc is like in terms of the work-life balance of, of uh, a deep, more and more appreciation for what family means and what, what love among intimate, close relationships means. So before we get into what he had to say, I just want to say this isn't the usual audio quality we have for the podcast. It's kind of due to the nature of how these interviews are done when they're kind of these official interviews and they're doing multiple interviews in the same day. So um, we can't get him to come on to Zencast, you know, our special podcasting platform. So apologies aside for the audio. What did you think of what he had to say, Lori? 
I thought it was actually, I, I was kind of interested, uh, very interested because he is, they have brought up his workaholic tendencies, right? Because we had Culber saying to him, you know, you're always working all the time and that he is trying to figure out now he's got a family in a different way that he had before. So I think that that could ultimately lead to some either conflict or, or changes in growth for him in terms of the arc that you were talking about. On one hand, he says he, he expects it of others. He expects other people to be a workaholic too. Right. Right. And that that will never change. So he, but yet he has to find this balance uh, in a way I'm, you know, maybe he never will. I don't want, and we've talked about this before. I don't want Stamets to lose the acerbic side you know he was a little bit of too much of a dick in season one but i don't want all touchy-feely you know yeah and i did think he went a little too quickly there with adira like i thought they could have slowed that down just a little bit so that it seemed more natural but again they had him as a character being surprised by his reaction to them anyway you know, talking to Culver about it. Why do I feel this? You know, what is this connection? So as I think as long as they keep exploring the challenge he has to his own personality, as these changes come up, it'll work. But yeah, I want that edge. I love the edge. There's a great opportunity for conflict with Adira. This character increases the diversity of the show. And I do think that that's important. But Adira is a young person with their own opinions. And we kind of saw that when Adira was introduced and I want to see them in conflict and yes. they want to have this family dynamic, but they're, they're both naturally the kind of people would get on each other's nerves at the same time. And every family has this dynamic of you love each other, but you also drive each other crazy. And I hope they don't shy away from that in season two. Right. I was going to say my 13 year old and I have never noticed any conflict. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. And I also think that the fact that Adira still has this symbiont could also create some interesting stories and conflicts. Like Indeed. you don't know anything. You're 16. Well, actually I know a lot because <laughs> I got a lot going on in here. So there, there could be, I, I hope they explore that side of Adira. He's so very thoughtful, Anthony Rapp, about the character and about the show. And you hear that more in the, you know, clips coming up. And in general, I've talked to a lot of these actors. I mean, they all believe in their craft and they're all very good at what they're doing. But there's something about him and the way he thinks about it. I don't know. It just it seems different to me. And also his character's been through a lot even though it seems like some of the other ones have been through, like Saru had a physical transformation and all of this, but I feel like his character has been put through the ringer. So the next question I think was something that you teed up for me. What I really noticed in the finale of season three, there are all these lovely moments of everyone smiling at Michael and Michael's the captain and there's all this grinning and happiness. And with Stamets, he always had this, this, I was going to say pained, but that, doesn't I think express really what he was sending out there, which was that he was still completely conflicted, resentful, couldn't get behind that, that positive 
feeling that everybody else had. And you asked him if that was something that was in the script or came from the director, if it was a personal choice. Yeah, I mean, it's a personal choice. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think Sam would say, no, Michael, you cannot be captain. But just that, uh, you know, something happened between us and that was painful. And it's hard to be like super cheerleader rah-rah in a situation where there's some lingering pain. But I don't, it's not insurmountable pain. It's not like, it's not forever, we can never be close again pain. But, you know, it, it was painful. So it made sense to me that it wouldn't be like, I'm going to be like cheering you on right now. Um, and, and that was supported by Tunde, who was our director of the finale. Yeah, I mean, again, I didn't want to make it like, oh, my God, I'm going to kill you. But uh, but it's just, the, you know, it's a subtle thing of, yeah, it's hard for me to be like 100% like totally happy right now. Now, is this something that carries over? Because it, it kind of seems like it was a somewhat hanging bit for season three. So everything forgiven in season four or are we going to at least deal with it a little bit? There's a little bit of dealing with it. Um, and uh, there's been some time for things to settle. And then the way that it's addressed, I think, is an interesting and, and um, honest way that, that it does get addressed, if I can say that without being spoilery. Now, what I love about that little back and forth is we got a little little season four from him. We're not really supposed to talk about season four during these season three Blu-ray promotional interviews. <laughs> And in general, they're all told never to just, you know, say anything about anything ever, even though for some reason, John Lancet could say whatever the hell he wants on Cameo. So it was nice um, to sneak in a little season four here. We kind of knew this was happening of that. There's a little bit of, you know, he says there's a little time to settle. I mean, that's kind of apparent right from the uh, teaser is, you know, they have the different uniforms and various people got a new rank. So it isn't going to be like seasons two and three, where it's literally one second after the finale, the next season starts, right? Right. We don't, we don't know how much, but you know, enough time for them to change uniforms and get promoted, which takes, you know, more than a minute, but that, you know, that time I guess allows some settling. So he's not as angry as he was in the finale, but they're not ignoring it either, which I'm glad. Yeah, that was a big deal. Like I found those scenes, which I guess was in the penultimate episode of the season, where he and Michael are really in in major conflict because he wants to go rescue Culber and Adira and Saru. And she physically stops him from doing that. And he's pleading with her. I mean, I thought those scenes were amazing. I thought he was incredible. She in literally throws him out of the ship in what would have been terrifying because he gets oh my god sucked yes out, sucked out the window and in, in like a tube or something it was like a tube whatever it was it would have been terrifying because he was in space you know he, he had some kind of cocoon around him but and she just did it like he did not have a choice he was telling her not to do it and yeah. she was doing it and basically stopping him from saving his family and he thought that she was sacrificing his family so it was yeah. i i loved the intensity of it and i thought he played it really well but it is interesting that it was a you know in the finale it wasn't in the script he was just kind of playing that picking up on it but it was his choice which again shows how he's very thoughtful as an actor but for season four they're not just kind of pretending it never happened and you know i, I i'm guessing we're gonna get like a scene 
where they talk about it and you know hug it out or something what do you think i'm hoping there's some a little bit of resentment that we see some of that first i don't want it to be quickly resolved i mean i understand even if some time has passed i would expect that it's festered a little bit he spoke in that clip about Tunde, who directed the season finale. He's the executive producer and producing director for the show. So he, I think at this point, is directing, especially in season four, a lot of the episodes. Maybe half, maybe not half, but quite a few. But the previous episode, which we were just talking about, where he gets sucked out of the ship, where they really get into a fight, Michael and Stamets, was directed by Jonathan Frakes. And and Anthony Rapp talked to you about why he was so glad that Frakes was there to do it for such a challenging scene. I was very grateful that Jonathan Frakes was the director of that sequence because he's such a he's such a sensitive and um present and and uh character driven and story driven director that when I read the script and I saw those scenes and then I found out that Jonathan was directing, I was very relieved and grateful um, that I felt like we would be in excellent hands. So, yeah, it's just a matter of like just diving in and going for it and then trusting that he would say, OK, well, you need, can you just sort of recalibrate this moment a little bit? Um, I had that trust and safety with him made all the difference. And then it's just about like telling the truth and going for it. You know, so there we have it again, as we were hearing before from Brent Spiner. Everybody loves Frakes. The actors love Frakes. Yeah, and it's not just because he's like a good time, fun guy who sings on set. It's because he really connects with the actors. And I've heard people say the same thing about Robbie McNeil, too. And and a lot of actors who direct, which is that they really understand the actor's process because they've been there. And so they can help them get there. And I think it makes the actors feel safer, which is pretty much what he was saying. So the next thing we're going to talk about is something that is definitely... Uh, for me, because it's something I obsess about, which is uh, Stamets' position on the ship (laughs) Um, and this this issue of conflation of science and engineering, which every Star Trek show has been bad at, really. (laughs) Um, Except for the the original, I mean, the original series, I think, was pretty good because, you know, you had Scotty and you had Spock, very different, and everyone understood that. But in general, these shows kind of imply that scientists can do everything engineers can do and engineers can do everything scientists can do. And so I wanted to talk to him about how you know he sees Stamets' position on the ship. And now that Michael is no longer head of science on the ship because she's captain, uh, someone's got to be, right? So it makes sense that it's got to be him. So That's what you asked him, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, Stamets, Stamets is, a, you know, his primary science is astromycology, biology, uh, but he's, you know, able to, he's so smart, he's able to dive into any aspect of it, and he has a, a wide range of interests, um, and is able to, when called upon, to kind of spearhead a, a project that science-based will go whole hog, and that, and now also has Adira as not only, you know, family member, but also protege and and partner and you know adira is a brilliant scientist you know they're 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 younger than samus but really uh super smart i think even like probably even a better mathematician than samus is so um yeah that but i yeah there's no like official designation like sam sam there's no like 
because I know we've talked about this before. People are always conflating chief engineer, thinking Stamets is an engineer, but it's important for you that he's science and yeah. uh, Reno's engineer. And, and it's understandable because, you know, the, the, the spore drive is part of engineering. It has to be. It's part of what makes the ship move. But it's, and it's, you know, he's located in engineering. He's sort of co-opted that space, but, um, you know, and knows about the, the warp core and knows things about the systems of the ship, but is not the yeah it's not the not the one pulling all those strings and making all those decisions yeah it's so funny because everybody keeps saying like is reno the chief engineer and is she stamets's boss and all of this and i'm not sure how much he was able to clarify that i mean it's weird he says we never see him call the chief scientist but he is the chief scientist well i like what he says because he said i like that he said he would see himself as the chief scientist which is very Stamets. <laughs> but the chief engineer, which we assume is Reno, and hopefully they say it this time, they're different departments. Right. So he did bring up Adira again. It sounds like they're a team, right? Him and Adira working together on science stuff. Yep. Hopefully we get some fun stuff here, you know, both conflict and cool science stuff. And that they complement each other with different things. Yeah, they're very different personalities. So they should be able to do that. One of the reasons I brought up the issue of science is because season four, we've been told, is different in that the big arc of the season um, and the kind of adversary of the season isn't a person. So it's not going to be another Orion uh, like Osira or Control or any other bad guy. It's a spatial anomaly, a gravitational anomaly, specifically, as we saw in the trailer. Uh, and we saw Stamets kind of giving a briefing on it, doing some exposition on it in the trailer. So I asked him if this brings Stamets more to the front. If the big bad is a scientific phenomena or phenomenon, um, then, yeah, the question is, so does that make Stamets more of a main part of the story and less of a sort of, not that he was a side guy, because he's not, but it makes him more important to the central conflict that's going on. Yeah, that Stamets is tasked with uh, trying to figure out what the hell this thing is and what it's doing and why it's doing what it's doing. And I think it's, you know... uh, a way of creating a, uh, a story that in some ways responds to what we've been dealing with in our, in our, in, in our planet for the past year and a half or so, that there's this thing that happens that kind of throws everything into disarray, and it's inherently mysterious as to why it's doing what it's doing, but we have to respond to it. We have to try to find some way to solve it and put all our heads together to, to, to make it stop if we can. But it, because... There's no motive. There's no like easily identifiable motivator that makes it in some ways harder. So he essentially confirms that, yeah, he's basically tasked with taking this on. This is going to be his big focus and less about the spore drive. And now, because we've talked about this before in the season finale, Book was able to control the spore drive, right? Yeah. He was the first first, first person who could do it besides Stamets. 
And I did see another interview with Anthony Rapp saying that he had some great scenes with David Ajala in season four, which he had not had a chance to do before. So speculating here, maybe Book is in charge of the spore drive now, possibly, or at least doing that kind of navigational part of it. Mm -hmm. Something he said, you know, kind of seems obvious now in retrospect is that this show is being written under COVID. I I think it was done entirely remotely. So this was kind of their first crack at the remote writer's room back in 2020. And yeah, it makes sense that that impacted the show. And so in a sense, the gravitational anomaly is kind of the global pandemic. I do think that's what he's saying because there's not a villain or a nefarious purpose where they can just find the bad person and get rid of them. It's some huge problem that they have to solve that they've never encountered before, which does seem strikingly familiar. And it hurts everyone. So, you know, uh, adversaries and friends alike, you know, which I think we're going to see in the season is I assume, you know, we don't know who the bad guys are. You know, besides the Emerald Chain, um, but we assume there are some, and uh, you know, and and even people who weren't bad guys, there were you know they were kind of on the outs with the Vulcans and even with Earth. Um, so it's going to probably play a big part into Starfleet getting back together. It helps them get people to cooperate because you know everyone has to deal with this thing, whatever this thing is which we've seen globally with the pandemic is it doesn't care about borders. Right. And there might be people who have very different ideas about how to deal with it and different people who take the level of danger in, in, in different ways. The Klingons are definitely going to want to shoot at it. Right. Whatever it is. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing I made Tony ask, well, I mean, I can't make you do things, but one of the things I, ask Tony nicely to ask Anthony about was the possibility of a musical episode. And, uh, and you asked him very directly if he'd talked to Alex Kurtzman about it. I've been talking to him about it, but I've had been on panels recently with Michelle paradise where it keeps coming up and, you know, Wilson and I keep like poking her about it. So we'll see, you know, I don't want to push anybody in anything, but um, it would be fun. The planet of the singing people. Come on. It's easy to do. Sure. Sure. I'm with you on the singing planet. Such an easy, there are a lot of ways to do it, but that's such an easy, good one. And let's face it, there's been all kinds of singing on all the Star Treks at one time or another. So uh, Neil and I even, when I was thinking about it, because Neil and I did an article a while back that was just a whole bunch of fun musical moments. But afterwards, I thought of so many more across the shows. There are a ton of them. So I think there's no reason they couldn't do it. And I would be all for it. It doesn't have to be a big, weird departure there could there could be a reason for it and i mean would that count as because if you think musical you think you know know, there's music and people are dancing and it's a full-on production number and you know that kind of thing and whereas you know going to planet and everyone singing to each other (laughs) um may may be musical but does it count as a musical you know, right. Or are they I mean? forced to put on a show if they want to escape? No, that's dumb. But 
Right. Is it a music? Is it a full on musical with production numbers? Is it just an excuse for singing? What is it? I just think there are a lot of options. I confess I wouldn't be mad if they did do a full-on musical episode. And apparently Wilson Cruz is, I mean, he's obviously done (laughs) musicals on Broadway as well, including he was in Rent. They were both in Rent, yeah. There's others in the cast who could sing, I'm sure. Yes, and who love singing, whether they're good at it or not, but also lots who can. (laughs) We know that Frakes wants to direct it, of course. Yes. As well he should, Mr. Burst Into Song. Yeah, he's the right but, guy. You're doing a whole episode. I, yes. I know. And of course, there are holodecks on the ship now. And of course, it has to malfunction and everyone, and the only way to get out of it is to complete the musical number. There you go. Well, they did that on The Flash and Supergirl. <laughs> Where the only way to get out of something was to finish the musical. Kind of like The Bride of Chaotica. Right, where they had to finish the story right. in, in and, character. And the Royale. You know, when they went to the Royale, they had to buy, yeah. they had to be the buyers of the hotel. There's all kinds of goofy stuff. There's all, I think our point is there's room for it. It's not setting a particular precedent. And yes, what I'm asking for is something more elaborate, but they should just do it. I want it. And then people can fight about it and everybody will talk about it. They'll get a lot of press. And it'll be fun. Now, another trivial, perhaps, question. We we saw the new uniforms at the end of season three, and we've seen them again for the season four, even though the colors are changing. So I asked Anthony about if these are more comfortable. These are super comfortable. They're kind of like, they almost feel like pajamas. <laughs> the, the, material, the material that's being used is it's very, uh, it's just, it just hangs really well and soft and warm and um, and I really like the blue especially for me. I mean, if I were wearing mustard, I would be kind of sad. I don't think if I you know with my coloring, if I were wearing mustard, I would look like I would look like a dead person. I think, but um, so I'm grateful that I get to wear the blue still, being a scientist. Um, and yeah, they're very 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 comfortable. And I always I I didn't find the original uniforms to be uncomfortable, but that these are even more comfortable. And I think that people will agree that they look really good on camera. I got to say, I was surprised to hear that he didn't have a lot of complaints about the original ones because a lot of people did and talked about how uncomfortable they were. But I'm glad that he said that these ones now feel like pajamas. I think it's because he's a very slender guy, as is Doug. So they probably have no problem fitting into these things. But we we know that Jason Isaacs has complained about having to grease himself up. (laughs) That's what he said. He said he like lie down and then grease himself. up. He had this hilarious description of putting them on. Um, And I, you know, we've heard other stuff like that before. So I would imagine, yeah, it's easier for Anthony and Doug, like with that slimmer body shape. And again, not, it's not about a weight thing because Jason Isaacs is, in perfect shape, but it's just the shape of their body. I did laugh when I heard him talk about wearing mustard and how he would be sad (laughs) because he'd look like a dead person. He is a pale dude. (laughs) Blue is nice though. He's handsome. Some people do have to wear the mustard, right? Some of whom are fairly fair skinned. Emily Coots, right? right? She's in mustard. Detmer's hair color might help. I mean, because he's the blonde, too. So 
Anyway, we'll have a look. We'll keep an eye out for the dead person mustard color look. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Last thing is picking up on something that from my interview last year with Jonathan Frakes. Yeah, I love when you can tie these things together. Like, it's great that you're doing all of these. Because, no, you remember one thing led to a question that I don't think anybody else would have asked. So Jonathan mentioned, I think this is after he'd just done one episode from the season but he had mentioned that anthony rapp had been shadowing him and that's a you know industry term meaning you follow a director around to learn how to direct basically so you know through the whole process uh pre-production production post-production and just to kind of get a sense of what it's like um frakes did it a number of times before he did his first episode of next generation so I asked Anthony, you know, does that mean you're directing in season four? I didn't get to direct the season four episode. No, with, with, with COVID protocols, it would have been really, really hard to like, on top of everything else going on to give, you know, me my first episode in the middle of all that was a bit of a understandable um, leap for production and for CBS and slash Paramount Plus. But um, I am still crossing my fingers that that opportunity will come. Um, Tunde continues to also be a tremendous mentor to me. Frakes has continued to be a great mentor to me. Um, so I've, I've availed myself as much as possible of, of the opportunities to continue uh, learning and, and, and absorbing everything I can. And uh, I'm, I feel certainly ready to dive in, uh, with, especially with Tunde. As, as, like, you know, Tunde would be there every step of the way to just help ensure my success. But the idea of, of my first professional um, film or slash television directing job being with this show, with this crew, you know, I've known this crew for four years now. Uh, it would be the, 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 the best environment in which to get to do that. To, to I would have so much support. An amazing feeling. I love that he is hoping to continue the Star Trek tradition of actors learning to direct it's got to be i would think a very challenging show to do so it's a great place to learn with a crew that you're familiar with um and a lot of these people have gone on to make great careers as directors which we've talked about on this episode earlier with robbie right and roxanne dawson is doing tons of stuff you know there are a lot of them doing it and uh and anthony's done so much you know he's done theater musicals movies television so that would be a nice new step for him so i hope he gets I'm, i feel like he will get the opportunity makes sense that they didn't do it during covid because that's a whole other piece um but i hope he gets to do it i'd love to see what he brings to it now it was a little bit easier in the next gen era because the way those shows were kind of structured you could take a character and really diminish their role for an episode or so allowing them time to direct right because we noticed most of those episodes the actor was barely in the episode they direct right and that would definitely they'd have to find an episode where there's almost no stamets maybe that's another reason why in season four where he's more prominent it that was another wrinkle as well but perhaps in season five he doesn't talk about season five but he says that he hopes to do it which means he's optimistic that he'll be working in the fifth season and as an actor and hopefully a director. Yeah. I think of everyone on the show, 
he would be the one I would most expect. I don't know if anyone else is doing this, but if someone were to cross over from acting to directing on the show, I would think he's the most obvious candidate to do that. Yep. I would think so too. And I don't necessarily know why it's like a feeling I have because I could come up with reasons why anybody else would be great, but I think he would be, I feel like I could be wrong, but I feel like there are some filmmakers among the bridge crew who maybe do some shorts and some other things. So some of those folks might want to step up. I, Emily does. I'm almost certain. Emily I think does Emily sure. and I think maybe Sarah Midditch, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but there, so there, there are lots of options and then that might be easier for one of them give, if they have, you know, less, fewer scenes in an episode, but I'd like to see Anthony do it. And I'm glad that that was, that it's something on the table. And that's, that's it. I mean, there's some more stuff we didn't cover you could read the full interview on the site, but those are kind of the ones that we thought were interesting to discuss on the podcast, but that's basically it. Yeah. So let's wrap things up with our Star Trek bits. I will go first. So this kind of fascinated me and it's something that we saw on Twitter from, I'm going to hopefully get her name right. Dr. Burko Katarina Ruzika, um, who did, a study of gender ratios in Star Trek series based on episode transcripts. So she posted on Twitter like a quick sort of visual way to see the male roles and the female roles. And then she, the full study and all like the statistical analysis, she links to that to explain how she got to where she is. But to me, the stats are so fascinating because obviously she starts with original series, ends up with um, Disco and Picard. And at the beginning, you know, the male, it was 80% or higher male lines per gender in a Star Trek series with women down in the 20% range. And over the decades, as the, as TNG and those shows started coming in, those numbers, they started, I mean, the men were still significantly higher, but they started getting closer and you can, it's visual. So you should definitely look at the link to see how this happens. And then Voyager gets interesting because we have the highest spot for women in terms of lines per gender. But of course there were way more men on that show than women. Like everyone talks about it as the women's show, but there were like nine cast members and three were women and seven of nine, who was a major cast member didn't arrive until season four. So they could, couldn't even get to parody but they got close. They got really, really close. And then, of course, Enterprise, boom, right back to old school stats, which we've, I, I have many thoughts on that, which I will save for another time. Um, and then the, the fascinating thing is we get to Disco and Picard and it's all even. We're like in the same kind of, they're in the same territory, finally. It's as if half of the population are women is that possible you think you think they're a bunch of women i mean you know it's interesting because <laughs> now we have to include there are other genders obviously that need to be incorporated into that um but yes it's it's nice to see that things have changed because i look at this and i'm like yeah i mean voyager especially where people talk about you know it's the women the women i'm like mm, not so much um <laughs> I mean, so, there, anyway, there's a, there's one or two episodes of the original series where there is there's one there's one with no women it's devil in the dark crazy which is a great episode like it's one of my favorite episodes but there is literally not one speaking part for any woman at all 
And, you know, it also brings me to those scenes. And I love Kirk. I love him. But when he walks into a room and there are men and women in that room and he addresses them, gentlemen, he does this all the time. He says, gentlemen, yeah. he says it on sp- ship wide. He says it. You'll notice, gentlemen, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Just like, dude, come on. So anyway, <laughs> and I love him. I'm not one of those Kirk haters. I'm a Kirk lover. But it's nice to see that they've finally fixed it. What I like about this is, you know, zooming out is that it's a scientist who's looking at Star Trek scientifically. Yes. And we just, you know, so this is our Stamets episode. It's our science episode. Yeah. So my thing is another science thing. I always love when Star Trek and science kind of come together. And there's an article in this week's Scientific American about how the warp drive in Star Trek is inspiring some scientists to actually look into a whole new realm of physics. So again, it's Star Trek fake science, essentially inspiring real science again, you know, and it's in, you know, and it's just great to see scientific American, you know, with an article about Star Trek and warp drive and in, in, in science magazine and in nature magazine, which are two very respect magazines, they, also have articles this week uh, about Borgs, real Borgs. Yeah. Another scientist has been studying some microbes and has designated certain microbes as Borg because they share some characteristics of assimilating chromosomes. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the details, but, you know, she named them Borgs and that's that's what they are. I so love it. That's just kind of, that's just kind of cool. Real science and Star Trek science coming together. Yeah, I love so Star Trek inspires scientists, scientists inspire Star Trek. It's just a beautiful little circle. It never ends. And we have one last thing that we want to remind you of this week, which is that LeVar Burton starts his run on Jeopardy on Monday, July 26th. So watch it, comment on it, post stuff on social. Let's, uh, you know, for all of us who want him to get that job, maybe there's something we can do to help. The world make- needs more LeVar Burton. Yeah, so make a big noise, people. And watch. So, that's it for another week of All Access Star Trek. Yeah, that's it. I got nothing to say to that. That's it for another week. We'll <laughs> see you next week. Come comment. And thanks for listening. Yeah, so come back next week for our full analysis of everything that came out of Comic-Con at Home. That'll be on July 30th, because if it's Friday, it's All Access Star Trek. Goodbye. Say goodbye, Lori. Goodbye, Lori. <laughs>